spookiest time of the year, there are a few guidelines all ghosts and goblins should follow. Always stay on sidewalks. Never go to a stranger's house. And never go out alone. Witchcraft is just a way of concentrating energy. You can only work with what's already there. I just use sex magic to create love magic. Sometimes it's almost scary how strong the love gets. Welcome back to 31 for 31, a Halloween mixtape. We are on day 14 of our countdown. Start of week two tomorrow. Yeah, start of week two. And we are traveling to the swinging 60s, sort of, in Anna Biller's 2016 feature length film, The Love Witch. Is anything we're watching not feature length? All right, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you up with, I feel like it's got the 60s texture with the 70s costumes. And then somebody picked up a cell phone. And I was like, oh, okay, I was just making sure. Because this movie yeah. really loves the texture of Technicolor from the 60s, that Jalo, you know, 60s horror kind of feel. And, you know, the very velvety, stilted acting Technicolor right to the face of, of the camera. But, you know, they're also like, 1998 sedans and 1970 coupes in it so they, they i liked that part of it of it just being like sure yeah you know it's it's a little you know it's it's now but everybody just happens to be in the 70s uh except for small portions yeah it's a bit of like whichever character you're following things start to shift a little bit depending on the time like you go into a cop like tv 1970s procedural at some point and then yeah, there's a modern cell phone and a 1960s Ford Mustang. All right, we're getting, ahead, 19, of, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Jamie, all right, we'll inter- come back to the 1980s police yeah, cruiser. I'll, yeah, I'll introduce Jimmy, but, uh, Amy, introduce it. We'll put that in later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who are we, Jamie? Who are we? <laughs> so uh, Anna Biller's 2016 The Love Witch, a technicolor psychedelic dream lives somewhere in the modern day. Yeah, or a nightmare for some people. <laughs> Um, it is a loving tribute to the films of the era. It's very campy. It's very groovy. A lot of the praise for it is for the production design, the costumes, and just the like how it's shot. It looks straight out of the era of what it's sort of kind of spoofing and po- poking fun at, which is the sort of Technicolor era. The story involves uh, the titular love witch, Elaine, played by i don't know one of the most beautiful people on the planet <laughs> just like this <laughs> yeah. like seriously just, all right uh, jamie uh, <laughs> wow. played by so jamie i thought you were gonna say absolute <laughs> crush did she cast a love spell on you yeah maybe i think she did on everyone um but played by samantha robinson who we catch up with leaving san francisco after having heavily implied to have murdered her husband and is starting a new life as a witch. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah. She's it's a good uh, restart. You know, I, I think she gets a ton of praise for this movie because she has a thankless task for a while that you finally kind of catch into of just acting 
poorly. <laughs> she acts poorly amazingly well. She does like a very presentationalist style of acting that's very stilted to the camera and playing broad and very arch. Bit of that like nineteen fifties melodrama style. Yeah, and she is I, I remember seeing the trailer for this at the Nighthawk years back and just thinking like, whoa, okay, is this an old movie that I haven't seen? No, no, no. Okay, this is a new movie coming out in that style. And just thinking like, oh my gosh, halfway through the trailer realizing like all right, this is just people who are so plugged in, a director who knows the performances of the era so well that they're getting the best out of these smaller actors that are nailing the the super campy, over-the-top play for the rafters and, you know, just be very broad in your presentation uh, performances. So she's, she's a treat, not only because yeah. Jamie is uh, now... Madly in love. Has a love spell, but <laughs> she just has, she's so dialed into it. I couldn't see anyone else doing this particular role, which is pretty tough to to pull off for over two hours like she could. And the director not only serves as the director of the film, but also wrote, produced, and is the film's production designer and worked on all the costuming and everything. So it's it's very much a singular vision and you feel that across every frame and and it starts off, you're questioning where, when it is, and you've got some rear screen projection, and you're wondering if it's going to be kind of a Hitchcockian throwback, and then we start moving on and moving on and adding new things, but it always feels very defined and contained within this world as a singular vision and not just you fired a production designer halfway through or something. Now, she she usually like stars in her movies too, and like I feel like she would have if... She probably just wanted to get somebody who was younger and carried that energy. But, you know, this is just you could tell that she's behind the camera, just absolutely tuned into every single detail of how it looks, sounds and plays, uh, because this is just like an absolute masterclass of go and make something completely your own. And I think yeah. the biggest argument I'll make is just like being able to pay homage to something doesn't mean that you have to just go back on trodden ground like you can just as well play around with conventions while playing um, paying homage to something and just being able to bring a new a new message or a new story into something like that so take that stranger things we don't need yeah <laughs> we don't I mean, need your shit yeah you could pitch this as a serial killer film and and take it in so many different directions and she casts an entire group of actors that are a bit ageless as well some of those actors you could put back on you know some black and white film and you could convince me that they're just living in the 1940s it's particularly those... the the police detective love oh yeah he's griff who just griff. looks like a matinee idol out of time and probably yeah. will not get much work otherwise because he just looks like a person who shouldn't be alive today this movie could easily stand next to all these other movies from the time period, the 60s and 70s, and like would not feel out of place unless you watched it yeah. the whole way through and you're like, wait, why are they? <laughs> What's that in our hands? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. that's only once I counted, but the, yeah, and Samantha Robinson got so much acclaim for this. And I mean, if she could do this, she could do anything. I mean, come on, you know, but she's been in a Tarantino movie since playing one of the smaller roles in Once Upon a Time. And, you know, I remember her in that. She was fine, you know, but f to have such a commanding performance doing such a particular thing. And as Jamie said, you know, just being a very dynamic 
presence you know jamie falls in love we all love her performance you know but um i think she she deserves a a, a bit more so maybe i know that uh annabella's coming out with a a new like bluebeard movie or something so maybe she'll be she'll get another bone thrown yeah i hope so and you know hopefully they'll do another reboot of bewitched or something so griff (laughs) griff can be in it yeah well if if she were actually in charge unlike you know what happened with will ferrell yeah that would be much better handled you know she would understand the the gender politics of that a lot better but yeah I, i i just you know i gush over this movie i think it's so fitting at this place in our list just being just an odd detour into this odd part of california and i feel like we've been talking about things in terms of sipping a beer or having buddies over and watching these kind of grimier films but this is one to like put on a robe and drink some merlot to you know yeah. this is just like say a light, light a, a candle <laughs> i don't know i know i almost feel like that's not a good enough drug jamie like it needs to be classier you know like and i i just think that the Eat some devil's weed. Pull the the velvet drapes, you know, and, you know, just let the colors consume you here because it is just a feast to watch. And, you know, it's a costume party to the max with a full budget, full scale that even that Victorian house that she goes into right in the beginning, I was absolutely in love with. I wanted to live in there. I wanted to go to a party there covered in, you know, like you're saying, huge robes and drinking up goblet of the darkest port i've ever found Ooh, and I, I i agree with that that costume party energy because it has that degree of camp that i that degree of putting on airs and having fun and poking around at, at that but also the you know like any good costume party it has like a real earnestness to it too you know like yeah. nothing about this story is just hey let's have a fun camp experience of throwing it back and we'll all just kind of giggle along you know it's like no there's all of that richness to how much it's something that tarantino would nod at and be like wow they she understands the (laughs) exact language of these kind of movies and i i bow to her but at the same time you know it's able to have just as much fun with with new ideas and 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 be like its own new you know, pioneering thing that's not just here for the laughs and the gags of what's familiar. 100%. Just the way that it embraces like the camp of its aesthetic while also saying, posing a lot of questions, you know, and a lot of those questions sometimes elicit grotesque responses when you're just thinking, oh God, like the gender roles of that era were so fucked up. And even the characters- 2016. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But even the character- with the characters within the film even comment on it, like her friend Trish at one point kind of looks at her and is like, mm, like, girl, you don't need to be going out here, do it pleasing men. Like, all, like that's not your role. And, you and should have she, been the character that was like the, the sassy <laughs> friend, I guess, in this movie, just to be like, mm, no, girl. Um, but the interesting part of this character, too, it's just like how much she as a character develops this very interesting needle of how she's trying to have feminist power over her circumstances and kind of using the role of, of the witch, which of course is like a classic, you know, feminist power angle and kind of sexual revolution angle, um, you know, as a fun twist on her being an earnest person who has just been wronged by men's evils in love, 
who now thinks I can have power through being a witch. I can make men fall in love with me and and finally have them be the ones that are crying over me. And I drain their life force very literally. And I think that that's just an interesting interplay of how that ultimately becomes her tragedy when it's a very conventional want for the character, but she does it through kind of these, you know, obviously fringe and witchy means that make her almost a type of villain. But, you know, at at the end of the day, her character motivation is just doesn't somebody want to be wanted? You know, that's that's a fun uh, thing to to see even outside of that friend character who say like oh you don't need to be like that you know she she has such a interesting and very narrow type of like a feminist upheaval of of the patriarchy as they talk about um to get something very specific out of witchdom which usually is just kind of vague it's just kind of like ah i'll be i'll be powerful you know <laughs> yeah. uh, or it's now become kind of marvelized and you've got scarlet witch and agatha and these which is that it's less about the occult and, and about the connection to earth and land and spirits. It's much more just magical superpowers from some other dimension that yeah. either are red or blue or orange and fly out of your hands. And they have a good emphasis on like her being part of a demon or a devil worshiping community that's all into the Bacchanalia and, and Dionysus and wine parties. And they're all just like nice people, which yeah. I think is like always a, a fun reminder of like, oh yeah, these are people that just decided like, I'm going to care more about pleasure and that's what's going on with me. I hope you're doing well, you know? And as, as opposed to, we never see them murder children. They kind of get a tisk tisk whenever there's a rumor of any violence or foul play, you know? So they're not great people, but definitely, Definitely not thrown into this kind of American horror the, story representation of them. I would say the leader is a little creepy and is sort of portrayed as kind of the dark underbelly of that sort of lifestyle and style, right. which is even like in escaping sort of the patriarchy, there's still these ma- male figures of power that are yeah. abusing it. Clearly. Yeah, he he's definitely not good with consent, <laughs> right? And and no. I he's, think he's trying to kiss everyone on the mouth. I think that's a fun you know, kind of underbaked part of it that could be an, a whole other movie of the witches taking over their own coven or whatever, you know, another American horror story reference. But I think that that's ultimately like aided by the fact that anytime she's actually getting advice or hearing like, here's any, my, this is what my point of view represents dialogue is coming from kind of the other women around her. And it's just kind of fun to hear people discuss like witch activities Kind of like, how was your Thursday? I, I, yeah. I loved those. Di- like, oh, what's happening with the man, the married man you're seeing? I, I thought that went well when you had your cast your you love know, potion. You cast your yeah. love potion and had a doll of him. And they and- do a little bit of like reference in, in that when they're just talking about how life was nicer when they were in San Francisco. And, and now it's a little bit different as they've gone south. But that it made it seem like in San Francisco, even their stranger versions of celebrations were much more accepted and normalized there yeah and like and i do like that this town you know three-fourths of the way through the movie gets defined as being like we leave the witches alone we have a tenuous (laughs) treaty with the witches which is just a great thing to throw in there is like oh yeah the captain said drop the case the witches we need to simmer down our our, yeah it's a hatfield mccoy situation going on apparently that we were learned or become privy to at the very end of the movie (laughs) yeah which i just love those kind of drops in something like this but yeah i think the 
the whole element of this is like, you know, having scenes where people just really come out and discuss the themes of the movie in the movie usually doesn't go down too smooth. But there are at least three or four occasions, whether it's that scene with the, the other neighbor female friend about the role of a wife, the, you know, the conversation she has amongst witches and new witches about the power that being a witch brings to a woman, you know, and, and some others towards the end when it's more about her personal relationships of, you know, the love witches failed relationships that were just basically discussing the themes of the movie at large, like it just on the nose. And it's well enough done and it fits well enough based off of how the dialogue is so purposely stilted in the rest of the movie that it works in a funny way. And it's like, yeah, that's actually conveyed pretty well. And I think those earnest moments are some of the better ones when you're like, oh, okay, that's really thoughtful. And I like how what you're doing with this. Keep going. Yeah, okay, great. I'm, I'm on board. I'm not, you know, rolling my eyes at this kind of feminist film theory being discussed within a feminist film. I, I was I was all for it based off of how, yeah. you know, it came across pretty well. This could have gone off the, tr- the rails very easily, but I think Anna Biller knows exactly what she's doing and kind of like what you said, Chris, her vision is so clear and singular that she's able to accomplish exactly, like hits the mark bullseye of what she's trying to skewer and emulate in this like perfect little package. Like everything works in tandem with one another. It would be one thing if it was just, like you said, Cody, like a loving, you know, throwback film which is emulating these old films but the fact that that works in conjunction with sort of twisting the these themes and looking at it just it it just works so well and i think i i I fear that so many people have missed this film for whatever reason that they they either think it's an old movie (laughs) that they're just gonna pass over or they think it's or needlessly weird and it's honestly not that weird of a movie no yeah it's not at all. If it, if this was shot like Hellraiser, you know, just kind of like <laughs> low budget in houses, had some grain to it, but whatever, you know, obviously much worse of a movie, but you'd watch this movie and be like, yeah, that's probably, you know, that's a movie. <laughs> and like it wouldn't come across as this like, oh, it's so unique and, and off the wall and offbeat and everything. You know, it's really just like have fun with how this movie looks and how you have to adjust to the performances being very particularly directed. And outside of that, the story is just a kind of an engaging, good, thoughtful story, you know? And I, yeah. I think it's mis- misunderstood even pre-watch for, for mm-hmm. that reason. Although within five minutes, you know exactly what you're kind of in for, which I think is helpful. Like the, the basically the, the drive with the rear projection you're immediately thrust into the stylized world and you're either in or out. And I was certainly in being like, you know, absorbed by the luscious details. And then obviously the story kicks yeah. in. And that's a hard type of thing to to nail now because like there, there are iterations of iterations of starting a movie that way with Kill Bill being <laughs> the first option. It's like, we've already, we're, we've already done the homage to the homage to the, you know, like it's all like an infinite regress of especially starting a movie that way with a feminist, like revenge movie, especially. So for them to really win it over with a very specific performance and then the setup being very quick of I'm a witch, let's get into this. You know, I, I, (laughs) I think it it managed to win me over right about when she kind of takes her first victim. If we're going to see it kind of through a vampiric lens that way, that scene is just 
so down to business um, in such a good way where you understand immediately what the movie is going to be saying to you about how, what the kind of control she's going to try to have over people. And it's also, you know, the hands you're in as a director and the editor and just the entire team, you get those montage moments of her first husband, you're coming in and out of rear screen projection, you're already getting like beautiful California vistas, this like insane, intense blood red 1965 to seven somewhere Mustang. And you just I don't know, I was locked in, they were locked in, it doesn't it doesn't force you to sit with anything too much. And then you get the voiceover. And it's just a, it's just a great encapsulation of what you're going to experience. And then I was wondering, you know, how much is it going to shift? How much is this just going to be this type of scenes going throughout this? It's going to be voiceover explaining this. And I, I just got a big kick. You know, it was, it was fun. It was cute. I kept laughing and then being excited when you realized that her first real victim, the teacher, uh, is so weak that he can't even deal with her love and that and that this is a kind of sincere witch who really just wants this love from a partner and and cannot get it because they can't handle it. And I was like, oh, this is a awesome flip of where I thought this was going to go. Yeah, because she <laughs> never has like sinister aims with pretty much anyone. She just like has sinister consequences to yeah. earnest aims of like, I would love a just nice Renaissance fair wedding. <laughs> just well, and then, and then like you know, princess. the guy that professor locks himself up by trying to boast about his love of 18th century literature and how much he loves being a womanizer and has no rules and guy can't handle a little bit of demon weed and uh, some, some eggs it's very true yeah that, that very good looking steak did go to waste of this movie so r.i.p but um yeah i think that she just is able to go and very you know realistically do this soap opera style engagement of you know you convincingly being able to about face on things like oh okay i fell in love with a guy yesterday murdered him and now i'm on to a new thing you know obviously there's a degree of just kind of like oh har har you know this is a funny movie where people are falling in love in a day and and you know being very demonstrative about it but i think she does it in a way that's also just so somber and sweet <laughs> that you're like rooting for her in this really sad way of just knowing that she's a very broken person in a real earnest way and we're just having this very protracted love story presented it's just something that she's suffering through but i think that the themes of it are just top notch in terms of having to I spoke earlier about just like how transparent they are about this is exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. But I think it it picks a very particular lane to drive down. And it's looking at a very particular feminist angle of the control of like sex and relationship and what that means for that developing into love and what love then means. And then based off of love, what control means and based off control, what an actual relationship turns into, like all of those things are really well defined so that it's not just this sense where you get with some other half baked coven movies. That's just kind of like women can use their bodies for power. And it's like, well, for, for what end, you know, like what, you know, like it just, power generally cool that that can be fine but it's so particularly defined here about like what this character wants what they're getting at that you know for something that's played as so camp and so silly it's like 
I don't know. That's that's the best defined goal for a witch character. And, you know, the most emotionally resonant one, despite all this set dressing that I've seen. So kudos to not only the the movie, but to the character for trying for love. You know, <laughs> she's doing she's literally doing her best. She she can't. Some I wonder if she's doing too much because yeah. she is so beautiful. She already got Jamie with. OK. Potions. <laughs> all right. I'm just saying the, Jamie <laughs> is joining let me, let me salvage myself. I'm just saying that she is. Like cast in a way that like she doesn't even almost need magic to have people enamored with her within the film. And I that is very deliberate. And I think because yeah. as much as she is a witch, you know, obviously the film is driving far deeper than that. You know, it's using the the this witch, which is a figure in history and in film. You know, you obviously have your hags and your Hansel and Gretel type witches, but this is like the the symbol of a witch as a a figure of you know female power, like Cody was getting at. So having this beautiful woman who is having such trouble in love, even with the use of her own beauty, her own sexuality, and the, using magic, is still struggling. I think it's just making that point where she's obviously damaged. Like we get a little. We get hints about her previous marriage, which sounds like, and her even her father, I think, comes in at one point in like voiceover. And I think that's the thing is that, you know, we're following this character that, yes, she is trying to find love, but I think the film is also making a point that she is, she needs to almost like deal with her own trauma first before actually having a healthy relationship. Right. And, you know, by I think the that's end, the ultimate sadness of the advice the friend gives at the beginning of just like well you shouldn't probably see your life through the eyes of men and it's like that's the you know the particular power that she's trying to gain ultimately does end up serving like how can i get a man to convince how can i convince a man that i am enough for him which is ultimately backwards and 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 tough and you know obviously it's a type of power but a type of power that ends up feeling empty and and i think that's pretty beautifully played and you know i think the ending has a a pretty ambiguous note of of how she may or may not come to that realization or be left kind of bereft but yeah and she did <laughs> actually kill someone oh yeah actively at least yeah. once. Murder. I think, uh, well, my, my Wikipedia search came up with something interesting, if you guys look, that I thought was very telling is that the the director, Anna Billers, she said that part of the reason, like, the, the genesis of the screenplay was, like, reading self-help books and, like, one of the things was, like, how to get a man to fall in love with you. And it was, I guess the advice was, don't be in love, like... <laughs> Don't be in, in love with him as he is in love with you or something along those lines, which I thought was very interesting, like in the larger knowing that information and then revisiting this film. Yeah. And I think it's always under this lens of like, what are you doing wrong as a, as a woman? And I think she plays that as just like, oh, my gosh, as a witch, all with all my orchestrations, what's wrong with me? Because the result with these men the results with these men are, are, are poor and, you know, they, they either die or fall out of love and then die or whatever else. And the question never becomes like, what's wrong with dudes? <laughs> they <laughs> suck, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all their fault, you know? But I think that that is an interesting part of her character. And I th- it's funny even when like, that's those kind of those winks, kind of like winks that kind of break the fourth wall in some sense. Like, well, she's even, I mean, you're listening to her VO but like the first guy, the professor, when he's just like a puppy dog, like I fuck, like I can't. He's like crying 
when she leaves the room, he's like sad. Yeah, and calling she, out to her all night long. Yeah. And she's just like, what a pussy. <laughs> and, and then, then she <laughs> also drops like an incredible tampon joke in the middle of it. Yeah. yeah. Good. One of the world's best. But yeah, I, I think that the whole thing just works, uh, you know, to get into the door based off of the look of the movie, like we've mentioned. And I think it's just like something that I respect the hell out of just knowing some stories about how Anna Biller spent like just a, an unreasonable amount of time personally getting involved with how this movie was going to look and just investing countless hours like, like she did the costume yeah too, she right? scoured like vintage shops for all of that i heard she r- spent like close to a year full-time just building out the renaissance fair stuff for a scene that isn't the most important scene in the movie but just looks great for okay let's have a 70s idea of ren fair like that would be great yeah you know, i do love once you, once you once you get to the ren fair moment you're just like you're full in you're like okay yeah we're at a ren and, fair now and, on this horse ride it looks fantastic you know for for what it's supposed to look and you know this is done on such small amount of money it would be easy to make this look passable with a lot of money but it's the kind of thing that less money speaks more based off of how much actual craft goes into it and how much it's something that you know based off the scarcity of these fabrics that you need to have this be time accurate and all these kind of things like there's a real sense of artistry to all of it. And like my Wikipedia search pulled up the fact that like her pentagram <laughs> rug was like handmade by Anna Villa or something like that. It's like, that's the kind of stuff that shows like on screen, just the amount of detail and attention that one person really caring about one thing looking exactly right will produce as opposed to something that if this were made by committee, you could have a half-baked version of this that works in no directions, you know? And this is just you know, an auteur argument for just give one person all the power and all of the decision making and it'll either be entirely awesome or entirely awful by their by their design. And luckily, this is very awesome for that reason. I guess a part of me that I kept thinking about watching this was like Gone Girl and specifically the scene where Amy is like leaving and like the the reveal. If you haven't seen Gone Girl, sorry, but spoilers, spoiler alert. She's alive, and when she's telling that story about that monologue about being the cool girl and, like, you know, I I eat beer and I fit into a size whatever dress, like, I was kind of, like, that moment distilled into another, like, facet. Like, I mean, I just kept thinking about that moment while watching that film, which I think, you know, also that written by a woman, and I think is going into moments that are meant to make you feel uncomfortable because it's you're confronted with this truth. Yeah, and also a character that uses all the power and guile and and puppeteering of her, you know, the evil quote unquote parts of her character to then just have a healthy re- relationship for her with a man that she has complete control over, which <laughs> you know ends up being like, hey, Ben Affleck doesn't even deserve you, crazy Amy person. You know, but I, I think they're they're similar characters in that way, and and ultimately like faded to the same kind of bleakness in their relationships based off of you know a projected need for men's affections or men's closeness in a way that you know you forced are, by the circumstances of their situation or their station to I guess lash out in a way that is unhealthy for them and everyone around them right and i think the griff character and the ben affleck character of gone girl end up being similar figures of just kind of despite all of your 
best efforts. You've just got a person who isn't going to love you the way that you need to be loved. And I don't make any apologies for murderous (laughs) witches or Neil Patrick Harris killers. But I think the symbol of what that means to be a woman in a relationship who is made to try so much harder to get table scraps than men who just kind of show up and have hair. You know, <laughs> that's that's yeah. uh, the well, hinge. Did you see Griff's jawline? Oh, that's very true. Yeah, I mean, he would do very well on the hinge problems of today of you know, <laughs> just being over six feet tall and being employed. You don't have to have a personality. Both Amy and Elaine, very uh, creative uses of their own urine. I'll say that. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, really, yeah. there's true. there's an article yep. to be written here, Jamie, about Yeah, pee, blood, and... Yeah. (laughs) An analysis. (laughs) I think, uh, yeah, I think ultimately the sex in this movie is every single time it's presented as a sexy scene, it starts off as erotic and something that has, you know, a very clear male gaze to it. And I'm very particular about how I say male gaze because I'm pretentious and, you know, (laughs) male gaze has to be presented woman seeing the eyes of a man and then the camera becoming the artifice of being the eyeline match of the man. It's not just the camera itself. I make, I do apologize for this is the way I am and this is how narrow pretension defined forgiven. Yeah. Yeah, But it also uses the very narrowly defined female gaze in response to that very well of having an eyeline match of the woman being gazed, observing the man gazing her, you know, like all of this is kind of cinematic language that works very well with what the movie is trying to do, as well as, you know, some some other different types of female gaze that's just, uh, you know, for making object out of fetishizing male bodies as well. But I think those are the best moments where you have a conventionally shot male gaze scene that then has a reversal in terms of the power and the artifice of how the camera actually responds to eyeline matches. That's like the witch is in the driver's seat now, guys. You know, it's all about how she is manipulating your senses like the Marilyn Monroe of of typical male gaze scenes. And I, I think that that's handled like... I don't know. There, there's a there's a thousand college essays written <laughs> into how you could dissect how these scenes are shot that way and how the scenes stop being strip teases and start being thrilling and start being something that's more about, you know, the, the tension between the characters and how there's manipulation going on. End of end of monologue. <laughs> <laughs> and then throughout that manipulation, we do see the effect of this manipulation not only on the male characters, but on her one female friend as well. Later on, when the female friend is starting to wonder if she should change her way of seducing men or her way of dressing up, she puts on the lipstick, puts on the wig. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there that I'm not yeah. going to touch. <laughs> yeah. And then finds out that, you know, her one friend might have been having an affair with her husband and forced him to kill himself and then you get you get reactions on that as well so there's there's a a fair bit of reactions going around and and you're kind of shifting gazes she leaves the scene pretty heartbroken and early on but you know there's a moment of we're not always just in elaine's comfort world yeah and elaine has a very interesting response to that when she's actually attacked by trish and yeah she immediately like folds into like this childish fetal position where you'd never really see her that on defense and that out of control of a situation for the rest of the movie because 
her guile doesn't apply here. You know, she can't just yeah, yeah. flash the eyes and get somebody entranced when they're, you know, a woman, a straight woman trying to murder her, you know? So I think that was uh, an interesting, like, breakdown of, of her when she was already at her lowest in that part of the movie. Just like the Witch King, I am no man. Can't, can't fight. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I did that work? No, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like this film is a little bit in conversation with the lore as well, and some of those scenes in the the bar with a little bit of burlesque show, yeah, and yeah. some people at the bar are entranced by it. Some people don't know what it's all about. Um, in in the lore, everyone was a bit more into the mermaids, but in here you get to see a crowd that some of them just aren't really into the idea of witches dancing on stage, and some people are fully entranced by it, and it, and it works. They're for them. witch prejudice, yeah. <laughs> Which I get because it's <laughs> they murder people and they're they're you know potentially I mean, they murdering have, babies. Yeah, they on do fires. have some. Well, up up until that point, they've only allegedly murdered. Right, someone. right. There's a that's the that's the Hatfield McCoy prequel that i'm not curious to see but you know we'll see it also i mean kind of going back to just it being in tandem with other films i mean i'm in no way qualified to comment about this film and like feminist cinema like its place in feminist cinema uh in the same way that i'm not in any way qualified to talk about tales from the hood and black horror cinema but they are similar in that they are using these camp sort of schlock in some sense to convey these themes yeah because it it helps as a way to start a conversation without either getting too intense or dramatic or emotional it's it's a fun way to announce your themes pretty broadly and have fun moments and scary moments and then things to talk about and as you start dropping your personal feelings about it everything else can kind of reveal itself in a much simpler matter versus just going right into an argument i think i think that's so important for like prime rib schlock that's just kind of like okay or schlock that's a really well-made hamburger let's say just (laughs) cute taking really interesting format and making a filet mignon hamburger let's say um end of analogy where you know the uh the point being like i think that it disarms you to watch a movie like this at first because you're so in anticipation of everything you think like i have power over this movie because i understand tropes and i understand that it's paying homage to things i'm comfortable because i you know tales from the hood or this i'm like okay i'm gonna have an anthology movie where we're gonna have some stories told that are going to tell morals. I've, I've got a witch movie where she's going to, you know, try to manipulate this town and fall in love or take control of guys' hearts. And it's probably going to turn into a burn the witch situation. And when they subvert things along the way or add in interesting ideas, you're caught off guard and you kind of have to confront those things a little bit more clearly because they've lulled you into this false sense of security. Like you're going to have a complete grasp over every scene and I think yeah, that's what's like you. You think, you know, this story. Right. And as opposed to a movie that's all high art and you're just already lost and that you can't confront the moments that are sp- supposed to be speaking to you out of all the muck and moments that, you know, movies that just are too well-trodden ground where they're doing repeated, you know, kind of hackneyed messages. It's like, OK, I'm not going to internalize that at all. So I think that's why this is a good uh, that's always a good place to have like really well served schlock. In, inject some thoughtful some so- thoughtful uh remarks along the way or themes and i think that 
you know, horror history, that's been a time when horror movies presented that way can have great anti-racist messages, great feminist messages, great, you know, pro-LGBTQ messages. I think that's a formula that has to be done pretty well, but can really work to make you wake up and think about something differently while you just thought somebody was going to be, you know, stabbed with a ceremonial dagger and, and just go go to bed without thinking about anything differently. <laughs> yeah, I I definitely agree. I think this is definitely a worthwhile watch and is, is, would be a fun one to watch with people you just kind of generally want to have these types of conversations with as a simple way to get into it that you're not going to sit there watch something too high art something too overly dramatic but you're like hey let's let's get some wine and let's put this down and then maybe afterwards we can go get some more drinks and just generally get some chatting and i think i would say like oh this is such a fun lush movie to have on the background but it's like that would be such a disservice to this movie yeah i i will say the one thing that didn't fully work for me is i think it it stays its running time a little long but i'm but part of me also wonders if this is pretty much all they shot and they put it all on screen and and with you know the amount of work that went into everything i'm I'm kind of okay with yeah. that version. Yeah, if she of spent it. a year making the Ren, Ren Fair the stuff, rug. I'm, I'm comfortable yeah. spending twelve extra minutes on yeah. whatever they want. And it'll probably be much richer on more watches. Like this is my first watch. You kind of digesting it all. Now that I know where it's going, I feel like I'll be able to sit with it and let my eye wander around the frame a lot more and, and pay more attention to some of these tactile things within the, the scenes. And the three of us pledge that the next time we watch this, we will watch with our significant others, buy them. <laughs> some some wine for them to splash in our faces because <laughs> yes. men suck and we need to understand that from even their you know their perspective after this movie is much more helpful than ours but we can only put it on this list and say we enjoyed it and say that it brings up very interesting points of view that aren't necessarily as well defined in a lot of movies of its type of the last 10 years when you say oh this is a, a feminist horror movie made by a guy <laughs> you know? yeah which which, which is just basically because the just woman doesn't become, die yeah. you know that's that's yeah. a little different than something and it's usually this. yeah it's usually either that or it's you know this is a grindhouse rape revenge story like the woman gets away at the end it's like great did you hear how it started <laughs> I, yeah. I spit on your grave or something like that oh, like it's yeah. certainly it's no secret i should say that unfortunately you know women filmmakers are already marginalized and certainly women horror filmmakers and so for this film to exist and to be as good as it is and to be exploring the theme, themes that it is, is really significant, I would say. And, you know, the fourth act of the film of people just talking about it, I think is important. And Yeah, and I um, think it's just sad with the amount of shorts that Anna Biller has that are great proofs of concept for this, that mm-hmm. she still had to toil to the degree that she did to get this movie made and now we still haven't seen a feature from her in five years you know like that's the kind of thing where you know take the lynn ramsey example or something like that where it's just like what else do you have to do you know and Mm -hmm. and to if you're especially for independent film when you're not just proving you know return on investment you're proving you know artistic quality of the things you're going to produce like it's nigh on impossible to to get the same easy lift that some fresh out of UCLA film school <laughs> white guy would have gotten for making something yeah. half as thoughtful as this just to be like, Oh, he's the new wonderkind. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I would love to see this get 
you know, a push somewhere on a streaming service because I, I mean, I just think it deserves it. It would be a, a fun one to. This would be all over TikTok header. if it's yeah. not on Netflix. It lives rent free apparently on Shutter because it's always been there as long as I've had the service. <laughs> so thankfully, it is being you know, uh, you know, pushed along that way, or I, I guess elevated. It has a platform. Yeah, and it should be so much broader than horror fans too, though. And it's on. It's on Vudu with ads, but it's like such a disservice. <laughs> yeah, you want to like, log on to Pluto TV and get that. Well, it's like we said, it came out in 2016. And I mean, it's it almost instantly had a certain a fan base. And I think as the years go by. Uh, the New York's it, critic circles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah basically, everyone who lived at the night. I mean, A.O. Scott like said into the void, this should get an Academy Award nomination for best screenplay. And then that void closed. Up. <laughs> yeah. It he was, lives uh, there now. <laughs> there are no voice answered back, unfortunately. Um, so that's why, yeah, we're championing this film. And I think, uh, you know, in our playlist, we could have thrown like an old, an oldie like this, uh, you know, a Hitchcock film or something that certainly would have fit the theme that we're going for. But I think this is much more interesting to sort of throw a film that is of that style, of that era, you know, an emulation of that era at least, while digging into something more significant. Yeah, there's a lot of female genre movies with feminist lenses that are in the conversation even the last year of Promising Young Woman. But again, that strikes on the balance of what does a female character in a feminist movie have to go through to have a resonant theme in that movie? No spoilers, not great, you know? So I think that there's something to be said here of like, you know, her ultimate tragedy is still not finding that love, potentially finding out that she was looking for the wrong thing all along or whatever. But ultimately, she's the one stabbing somebody to fucking death in the end of the movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a beauty to that and how... And know, not just someone, a hot, timeless cop. Yeah. <laughs> hot time cop coming to NBC. <laughs> I, I think there's, you know, a major angle to that where as men, I think we come out of movies like Promising Young Woman and, you know, Revenge or other things that we mentioned. Just be like, oh, that was a fun little thing. But there's a there's a certain tax that that takes specifically as the lens of a female f- moviegoer, you know, not to speak for female moviegoers. But, you know, I had a great conversation with my friends and their respective significant others after Promising Young Woman. And I think all of us just thought of it as this really fun like Kill Bill, gleeful revenge movie, whereas the women in the room were horrified and very, very saddened by the movie. And, you know, loved it, but for very different reasons. And I think that there are other genre feminist films to be made that don't have that type of taxation on your heart, you know, that don't have to make you relive trauma or think about that level of trauma or even that brand of trauma. And I think that that's, this movie is still somewhat traumatic, but definitely a lot more gleeful than the feeling you would walk away from PYT with. Yeah, she's still she's still reacting or PYW. You know, to a, she's still reacting to a situation that it, you know, happened to her with her husband, but I like that the entire basis of the plot moving forward doesn't need to keep dealing with that and her her reactions are what she's deciding, not what she's, you know, doing because of the revenge of what happened to yeah, her. Yeah, she's the puppet master for sure. And I would just say, I mean, this is certainly a film and, you know, to all the men listening to this film, I think it's important to watch this film and then talk to women who have seen this film and have a conversation with them. Because I think, like you said, Cody, with Promising Young Woman, you know, I saw that with my partner, Alex. We took away such different things from the movie as well. And I think it's important to sort of have that perspective, yeah. particularly in a film like that, that is 
very specific in what it is trying to say. Yeah, and to close out our promising young woman pod, I think that also <laughs> too, like a lot of guys coming out of that focus on, again, spoilers for PYW, you know, the Bo Burnham character and are like, oh, let's have a conversation about that character and what that means for f- false feminists and all that kind of stuff. And again, there couldn't be a movie more about a woman. Like, can we yeah, talk yeah. about that character and her power and her agency and her decisions? And I think that's something where it's like this movie, there's no one else to talk about other than this woman, like and, yeah. and what she does to the men in her orbit but those men do not ever crash in from her orbit like it's about her and her choices and she is the character to focus on i i I think that is a refreshing thing too yeah and as someone who hasn't seen promising young woman (laughs) or anything else nominated for an award this year um yeah i'm just gonna go with i think the love witch is just an incredibly better film honestly (laughs) honestly you know both are great movies they're treading some more ground we'll see different angles no but like jamie was saying earlier you know we could have slotted a few different things in here we were working with stuff this is in conversation i think with a lot of other films going from classics to giallo and you could have slid in a suspiria or something here and i I think this is just so much more as a reaction and still in conversation and better than those films that it's it's fun to put this in and start to question and have a conversation about what made some of those things interesting in films? What is shallow in terms of their characters or one dimensional and where this is just a complete singular love letter to that. And yet its own vision that is so defined by the maker of it. With, uh, with this and Tales from the Hood, we're, we're pulling out the, pulling the rug out from under you a little bit. And our next film is going <laughs> to. We're going to burn the rug. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, we're just, yeah. And the next film, does the rug even exist? Though, yeah. The question. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that this next one has definitely some elements of kind of a femi- feminist critique talking about, you know, a, a woman in trouble, not necessarily that movie, if you know what I'm on to. But um, yeah, but she is taking a road constantly traveled. It's true. So. You know, we've got a pretty flowery, dreamy, colorful movie that has an equal level of darkness tomorrow. It will definitely spur even more, you know, head scratching conversation than, you know, exactly what the Love Witch is trying to convey. Um, so I think this is one that we're all excited for and we're all a little scared of. So and not because it's that scary of a movie. <laughs> so we'll we'll definitely be uh, we'll be in for a treat. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I can speak of a couple moments, but uh, we're in for a treat even as hosts tomorrow. So we will see you around the bend. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow. Bye.